Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. Good evening to you. This is Tell Me Everything. Bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble five nights a week. I'm John Fugelsang coming at you from Manhattan Island, New York City. Our producer, Thea Harper from Brooklyn. The great mighty Oz, Chris Hauselt, live from the South Carolina studios. Together we are bringing you facts and empathy and music and enough comedy to bring you to the brink, the edge of... Of amusement For the next three hours, we'd love to have you be part of our show. Our number is 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. We would love to hear from you if you're our evil army of the night. If you're just tuning in randomly or you're, you know, a right-wing pal from Breitbart and you're bored at a commercial break and landed here, we really want to hear from you. Give us a call all night long. Hello to our day walkers, the people who listen on the app, on the Fugelsang podcast or our SiriusXM On Demand. Much love to all you guys. You can always write us with your comments and thoughts and angry threats about the show, either to our show's Facebook page or johnfugelsang.com. We love to hear from you. Before I get started on tonight, I just got to say, you know, here's what happens. A couple years ago, they came at me and they said, hey, will you, will you take the show over to this other channel and do it at what the hell o'clock? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm pliable. Shiny things confuse me. What happens in this time slot is a lot of times the celebrities who we have, because we like to cross lines like that, we like doing a show that's a lot of pop culture and a lot of politics and science and mental health and comedy and journalism and activism and what have you. So so uh, it turns out these are nice people, the celebrities. They don't they don't want to come on our show this hour of night. So we go early uh, to do pre-tapes either in the studio or via Zoom at home. And today, Chris and I did a pre-tape. I just want to brag about a little bit because, uh, wow, you know, like. It's one thing to talk to a big movie star, a legend. It's another to talk to someone who is a big movie star, Oscar winner, but has done so many roles over the years and become so woven into the fabric of our culture. And today, we we did a 30-minute rollicking all over the place, crazy conversation with um, Academy Award winner for Best Actor, F. Murray Abraham, star of Amadeus and White Lotus. Imagine having your two biggest successes almost 40 years apart exactly. Uh, Chris, I don't know what you thought. I, I found F. Murray to be a riot, and we did 
just everything from from him being a kid stealing cars in El Paso to his work doing Shakespeare to to musicals to opera to the he opened up so much about the the death of his wife of 60 years and how he's been working and doing these media tours to get through it. It's an amazing conversation. I thought he was hilarious. It was one of my favorite ones that we've done in a a while. I was uh, really, really kind of blown away at just how great and what a wild ride of a conversation it was. He's 83, man, and he's in this incredibly gory episode of Cabinet of Curiosities. Have you seen it yet, Chris? Pedro Almodovar. Uh, Guillermo yes, del Toro was talking. Was, you saw it. It's, <laughs> well, it would oh. be funny if you were talking to Pedro Almodovar about it. Yeah, I, I always talk to Pedro Almodovar about other filmmakers' films. Um, uh, yeah, I still have nightmares about that episode. Are you kidding? It's so scary. He's got that, and he's got the, the, the White Lotus, and then he has this movie coming out all at the same time. So F. Murray Abraham, we're going to air that at some point. We have a lot of interviews backed up. So at some point before 2045 um monday. i think a monday we're gonna hear it could be a monday okay great i'm excited and because now he has all these new fans from white lotus so which i made all the way through all right lots of other celebs coming up some i can announce some i can't later on the show neil gross is going to join us he's a professor of sociology at colby college but he used to be a cop he was a patrol officer in the police department in berkeley california and his new book, well, it's the kind of book that only a cop who became a sociologist college professor could write. Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. It's a book for liberals and conservatives alike showing what good policing actually looks like in practice. And he takes us deep inside three very different police departments around the country in Georgia, Colorado, and California three very different towns and three very different police chiefs who tried to replace the traditional culture of police with models focused on equity before the law and social responsibility and racial reconciliation and the preservation of life. It is a feel-good book about policing, and I don't want you to miss it. And our good friend John Russell is going to join us. Uh, John Russell, of course, publishes the Appalachia-focused substack, The Holler. It's uh, independent media for the fed-up working class, and he serves politics to voters in the Upper Ohio Valley. He ran for state representative in Congress in the past, and John is a true Appalachian bartender philosopher, and he writes a lot about what caused that region to switch from a progressive, union-rich stronghold to a red state place afflicted by poverty and a little more than a generation and what can be done to reverse the trend. So three really smart guests. We haven't had John Russell on in a couple of years, so I'm thrilled to have him back. And of course, we're thrilled to have you guys at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Okay, I got it. You got it. It's good. Let's do a show. Here's the Republican Party platform for 2023. Guys, can you help me out? I think I've got it. Okay, write this down. You might need this uh, for debates. Here it is. Okay, it's it, the entire Republican Party platform. Trans people bad, January 6th, no big deal. And anything we don't like is woke. And that that's it, really. And then everything Trump wants, uh, unless it's DeSantis, in which case everything he wants, we need a ruler. Let's talk about January 6th for this evening, because you might have heard last night, who's, who's the guy, uh, Rob the Racist from Orlando? We got a couple of wonderful, wonderful, diehard, just men who traded in their manliness for blind obedience to Donald Trump's fat mediocrity. And sometimes they call up really, really angry. Sometimes they call up really smug. And last night, if you heard the show, Rob from Orlando was there, there, there. 
to drink our liberal tears because Tucker Carlson had demolished our false liberal woke George Soros, Fidel Castro men dressed as women narrative that uh, on January 6th, um, Donald Trump encouraged people to have a violent insurrection because they wanted to stop uh, democratically elected votes from being counted. He called up happy. And all day, if you look on social media, you'll see a lot of victory walks from a lot of guys who never made it to first base. How do you like that, libs? We've been proven right. Tucker showed last night. Tucker showed the footage. Showed with no insurrection, no violence, no nothing. Tucker used surveillance videos from inside the Capitol on January 6th to falsely claim there was no riot that day. You've heard about this story. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, desperate to be liked had an idea he thought was good. And because he's stupid, he passed it on to Tucker Carlson. And because Tucker Carlson isn't as stupid as Kevin McCarthy, but because Tucker Carlson only thinks about himself and nothing else, Tucker thought it'd be a good idea too. I'm here to tell you, it wasn't a good idea. 41,000 hours of January 6th security footage. And from this 41,000 hours, Tucker Carlson pulled 30 minutes of guys hanging out in hallways and launched an impassioned effort to kind of, uh, you know, white-splain away the Capitol attack. And uh, again, the Republicans are trying to get past this, right? The Republicans are trying to claw back from the findings of the January 6th committee, which documented thoroughly with testimony, with video evidence, how Donald Trump knew he had lost, lied to his supporters anyway, rallied his supporters head to the Capitol, and to fight like hell so Congress could not certify his loss to Joe Biden. That's what happened. You remember it. You were there, and you're not drunk on the Fox fumes. But in this roughly 30-minute segment, Fox distilled the thousands of hours of footage to nothing. Uh, Tucker said, take it as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. Look at these videos of people in the hallway. They're just standing in their hallway. They're sightseers milling about the halls, taking pictures. Tucker actually said, these were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. And then his, his complete lower and upper lip disappeared, uh, and he had no chin, because he can do that. Now, why is Tucker trying to whitewash what happened over two years later? Why, why, why is Kevin McCarthy helping Tucker to do this? Why are they screaming about January 6th? Let's keep in mind what we've just learned early this year. Rupert Murdoch admitted under oath that Fox News knew the election wasn't stolen. Rupert Murdoch, Tucker's boss, you know, the guy who writes him his checks... Guy who signs off on the policy that all my anchors have to have COVID-19 vaccinations. So Tucker got vaccinated, that Rupert Murdoch. He admitted under oath they pushed this false narrative that the election was stolen through Dominion voting machines. So Tucker is out for justice. And we talked about this last night. He kept showing footage of Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, the guy in the horned hat and bare chested. Tucker was saying, look, he's not doing anything wrong. Guy, guy was fine. Uh, Jacob Chansley pled guilty to felony charge of obstructing an official proceeding and was sentenced to 41 months in prison. But th this is it. The trolls love what he's doing. Inside the right-wing bubble, this is big news. It's really big news. Because these people haven't watched any of the footage of January 6th. They didn't watch any of the January 6th commission. They watch Fox. They watch Newsmax. They watch OAN. And they await further instructions. So they haven't seen the footage of cops having what we call the holy hell beaten out of them. So Tucker showed them that it was nothing. No violence, but really mundane. And Donald Trump today said this presentation was irrefutable evidence that the rioters were falsely accused, including all the ones who pled guilty. And he thanked the host. 
and called for release from custody. The terrorists who have been convicted or have pled guilty to charges from the attack. And I say the word terrorist very guardedly. Go ahead and look up the dictionary definition of it. Using violence or the threat of violence to bring about change in policy, yada, yada, you get it. So remember this. Tucker Carlson is lying about January 6th. His audience will believe his lies. Other right-wing talkers will spread his lies. 40%, 30% or so of Americans will then doubt the truth about January 6th. I know it's not most of us. Most of us will know he's lying. But if 40% kind of believe you might be right, that's all you need. And the divide in America will harden. And there will be more violence. At least a thousand people have been arrested in nearly all 50 states and Washington, D.C. in connection with the terrorist attack on our capital. 326 defendants have been charged with assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers or employees. 106 charged with using a deadly or dangerous weapon or causing serious bodily injury to a cop. 55 of them charged with conspiracy to obstruct a congressional proceeding or obstruct law enforcement. 518. 518 of these, God bless them, little Trumpy patriots. They've pled guilty to federal charges. 53 of them have gone to trial and been found guilty. So this video is not going as well as Liar Tuck thought. Obviously, the Democrats are going to flip out about it, right? Yeah, Congressman Benny Thompson, chair of the House January 6th committee, he called this a dereliction of duty. The speaker decided it was more important to give in to a Fox host who spews lies and propaganda than to protect the Capitol. Here is Chuck Schumer excoriating Fox News and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for allowing unfettered access to January 6th footage against the request of the Capitol Police to a right-wing propagandist who's only trying to distract his audience from the headlines that he admitted that he lies to them. Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, tell Carlson not to run a second segment of lies. You know it's a lie. You've admitted it's a lie. And Speaker McCarthy is every bit as culpable as Mr. Carlson. Speaker McCarthy's decision to share security footage with Fox looked like a mistake from the very beginning. But after last night, it looks like a disaster. Speaker McCarthy has played a treacherous, a treacherous game by catering to the hard right. He's enabled the big lie and has further eroded away at our precious democracy when people don't believe elections are on the level, that's the beginning of the end of this bold experiment in democracy that has gone on for more than 200 years. It's all the more shameful because Speaker McCarthy knows precisely what kind of customer Mr. Carlson is. He's not surprised by this outcome. What a low point for Speaker McCarthy. What a low point for Fox News. Oh, they're just getting started. Now, a couple hours ago today, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger accused Carlson of cherry picking clips from the 41,000 hours of tape to dishonestly portray the pro-Trump rioters as mostly peaceful. Uh, the chief, he praised on his force for their work defending the Capitol. He said, you fought like hell on January 6th and you risk your lives to protect the Constitution and everything the country stands for. You, along with our law enforcement partners, saved every member of Congress and their staff. And he, he took time to single out Tucker Carlson's really vulgar assertions that Officer Brian Sicknick's death by a stroke a few hours after he was pepper sprayed in the face by a Trump supporter 
The fact that he didn't die that day shows that his death had nothing to do with the attack. The Capitol Police Chief said the most disturbing accusation from last night was that our late friend and colleague Brian Sicknick's death had nothing to do with his heroic actions on January 6th. The department maintains, as anyone with common sense would, that had Officer Sicknick not fought valiantly for hours on the day he was violently assaulted, Officer Sicknick would not have died that day. But that's the Republicans, right? They went from back the blue to fuck the police. By the way, Schumer... He he said it was an insult to every single police officer, especially the family of Sicknick. He said nonviolent. Ask his family. All right. Well, you, you knew the cops were going to be upset. You knew the Democrats were going to flip out. But what about the Republicans? Well, Mitch McConnell opened his press conference with a stunning takedown of Tucker Carlson's segment on this previously unreleased January 6th footage. Now, this was very interesting because you don't see this very often. The Republican leader of the Senate publicly condemning a decision made by the Republican leader of the House. This really shows how divided this party is. You can call McConnell the Ron DeSantis wing and call Kevin McCarthy the Trump wing, but this is going to be ugly. Kevin McCarthy defended giving the access today, saying it was done in the name of transparency. But then why do you only give it to one channel? You know why. Because Kevin McCarthy is desperate to be liked. And a lot of Republican senators seriously blasted what Tucker did to whitewash the insurrection. Here is Mitch McConnell. If, if, you're, if you're around children or elderly folks in the House, I want you to just prepare them because you're going to be agreeing with Mitch McConnell for about the next minute. So if you're driving, you might want to pull over to the side of the road. If, you, if you're operating, if you're just, just sit and breathe. It's okay. I'll be back in in less than 60 seconds. Here is Mitch McConnell agreeing with you. Given that you agree with the Capitol Police's very serious concerns about the release of this footage, was it a mistake by Speaker McCarthy to give access to the cause of this security footage? My uh, concern is how it was depicted, which is a different issue. Clearly, the chief of the Capitol Police, in my view, correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on January 6th. So that's my reaction to it. Um, it was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. So, okay, you know how this helps McCarthy, right? McCarthy's trying to get more popular with the MAGA caucus because he thinks that's going to give him job security. You know how this helps Tucker, because for a day and a half, no one's talking about Tucker admitting under oath that he lies to his viewers. But how does this help Rupert? Well, the answer is (laughs) it doesn't. And here's where it gets interesting. Because Fox News has spent a couple of decades now creating this false reality that they keep selling to your uncle racist and your aunt dead inside that the rest of the media is biased, but we're not. And now, of course, anyone with eyes can see the truth. But now it's there in black and white, their own texts. So since Tucker delivered this big bombshell show last night, I mean, you've heard about it nonstop in the news, right? Did you know this? The other shows on Fox News have not covered Tucker's revelations about how nonviolent January 6th was. In fact, they did a search of transcripts. Tucker Carlson's name has not been mentioned once on any of the other shows on all of Fox News. Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, they didn't mention 
Tucker's story. Fox and Friends, top-rated cable news show, Trump-friendly audience, they did not mention Tucker or his story. The daytime news programs, at least through the early afternoon, didn't touch it. Fox News is literally trying to isolate their legal liability for the Tucker story and confine their legal liability just to Tucker. And I was all set to say, well, here's a good story. Let's open with this tonight. But then we found out the real reason Tucker's doing this, because earlier this evening, new Fox Dominion texts were released by Dominion. And guys, they're amazing. We'll go through it throughout the evening. But Maria Bartiromo crying to Steve Bannon about how depressed she is, that Trump is losing. And then Steve Bannon is telling Maria Bartiromo that they're going to have her run for the Senate against Chuck Schumer. I'm not kidding. Rupert Murdoch being really afraid in some of the texts that his staff has lied and pushed it too much. Still getting mud thrown at us. Maybe Sean and Laura went too far. You got the primetime hosts furious at the news division because they were accurate and they called Arizona for Biden. Hannity, Ingram, Tucker, all of them furious and wrong. Maria Bartiromo says in a text that she will not refer to Joe Biden as the president-elect on the air. Murdoch's predicting that Donald Trump is going to be irrelevant very soon. And then, well, then there's Wee Tucker. He made it clear. January 4th, 2021. We don't know who Tucker's texting with, but he said, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. And then, and then Tucker says, I hate him passionately. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration, referring to that guy that was always on Fox for Trump. I actually like Peter. But I can't handle much more of this. This is Tucker Carlson, who's complained how much reporters hate Trump. 2020, October 30th, he said reporters hate Trump with an all-consuming mania. In his own thumbs wrote, I hate him passionately. It's kind of beautiful. Fox News has been lying to its viewers for a very long time. They knew it wasn't stolen, and they lied because they were afraid if they didn't, Trump would take their audience away. Tucker doesn't want his audience hearing what he really thinks of them. He lies to his audience for money. So this whole little stunt was just Tucker's attempt to stay popular one more day and Kevin McCarthy's attempt to become popular for the first time. And the worst part of it all, the worst part of it all, just like Mike Pence before him, now we all have to praise Mitch McConnell as a great statesman, just because he didn't lie to steal an election. <laughs> Welcome to the Hall of Quail. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Welcome back to SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsang. So let's talk about crime and policing, because most Americans want to see the police reformed. A Gallup poll conducted in May, two years after the murder of George Floyd, found that 50% of adults favored major changes to policing. 39% wanted minor changes. Only 11% thought no changes were required. Despite this general consensus and a patchwork of recent policy shifts in communities across the country, injustices continue to accumulate, and it would be easy to see the problems with policing as intractable. So writes our next guest in an excellent new piece in The Atlantic, Police Reform is not hopeless. Neil Gross has a fascinating life. He's a professor of sociology at Colby College. He writes a lot for the New York Times and was also, as we mentioned earlier, a former patrol officer in the police department in Berkeley, California. He's the author of two previous books. He's taught at Harvard and Princeton. But his new book is something that everyone deserves to read, conservative, progressive, and everyone in between. Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop culture. He shows us what good policing looks like and how traditional cop culture can be transformed with the right leadership in three very different parts of this country. Walk the Walk offers a roadmap for those who are willing to try, but that's the real tricky part, isn't it? It's a great pleasure to welcome Neil Gross to SiriusXM. John, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. I, I find your life fascinating. A cop who became a sociology professor. I, I, I mean, your, your, your profile is, is quite remarkable. I know it's about 30 years ago. You were a 21-year-old rookie cop in Berkeley, and you tell this story about how you once pulled over an African-American man for running a red light, and the escalation uh, went pretty heavy and it got physical pretty quick. And one of the cops on the scene drew a gun. And as you sell it at the last minute, the man surrendered. It, it's hard to not see that as being a potentially life-changing experience for anyone with a conscience. You know, my, my pathway into law enforcement was, uh, was a little unusual. I grew up, uh, in the East Bay, the San Francisco Bay area, pretty liberal parents. Uh, certainly those were, those were my politics. And this was in the early nineties. Crime was really high. And, And I went into policing for the same reason that most cops go into it, which is to make the community safer, uh, you know, uh, uh, make things better for, for folks in my, in my neighborhood. Uh, and then I also had a secondary goal, which was to, work at making the justice system more fair. This wasn't too long after the Rodney King beating in Los Angeles and the trial. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to work on the inside and, and make things better. So those were the intentions that I went into the job with. And, you know, when I went to the academy and hit the street, I found a very different uh, policing culture. And that culture, um, you know, pushed me in in directions that weren't always uh, uh, ones that I wanted. And the example in the book is, is certainly something that um, has stuck with me over the years as a as a, a real lesson in the, the power of culture to to remake uh, to change what happens on the street, even despite the best intentions of officers. I mean, when you look at all the different problems that policing has, um, and the problems in the public eye between the wall of silence, the the racism, the lack of attention to racism, the involvement in, in white supremacy orgs by some cops, and of course. The militarization, which is like Eisenhower's worst nightmare, it's easy to see why so many Americans have lost faith in the institution of policing itself. And of course, the footage we see every couple of months of people who are unarmed being abused on TV doesn't change much. What I'm inspired by is it seemed like it was very important to you to write a book that acknowledges all of these ills and all of these failings and shortcomings, and yet still has the hope that we can look out for each other 
via a, a law enforcement? You know, law enforcement is a very big institution in this country, just under three quarters of a million police officers, uh, many thousands of departments, um, millions of contacts with citizens daily. Uh, and certainly many, many of those contacts go well, police treat people respectfully and so on. But as you've acknowledged too many times, uh, that's not the case. And, and the public has been very made very aware uh, of injustices carried out by law enforcement both in recent years and you know over the the last uh, the history uh, of policing in this country um but yeah bringing some hope to the story was uh part of why i wrote this book you know i, I originally undertook it when I, I moved to colby college 2015 i started teaching a class about the police small seminar and we'd read books about all the problems with policing you know, the right. uh, racism in the justice system uh violence brutality and so on and the students were very disheartened by the end. And, uh, you know, they wanted to know, is there anything we could do? Are there any departments that are actually doing things differently? And and I wasn't honestly sure. So I set out to, to find out. So in the book, I profile three departments that have worked hard, not just to reform their policies, but also to fundamentally change their cultures. Uh, and and you know, my idea was if more departments could learn about these lessons and if more citizens could learn about them, then perhaps we could make some real progress with the institution. And that's what the book really is. I mean, this is a book about how change is possible. And you show us the proof where law enforcement has changed demonstrably over the years. You do this by taking us into these three different police departments in very different parts of the country. Uh, uh, Longmont, Colorado, Stockton, California, and LaGrange, Georgia. I, I'd love to ask you about all three, but I want to start with the obvious question. How did you decide which, apart which departments you wanted to cover? Mm. Well, it was a, a long process of looking at data, crunching numbers, talking to lots of experts. You know, I, I one of the things I asked people when I started uh, interviewing them was, you know, tell me about police departments that you think are doing really poorly. And, and they'd have many, many answers. Uh, and then I'd say, tell me about police departments you think are doing well. And typically those answers were, were many fewer. Uh, these were the ones that kind of bubbled up out of that process. Um, and, you know, each one came to me through a kind of a different story. I'll give you just one example. Please. Uh, the department in Longmont uh, is, is run, was run by a, a guy named Mike Butler, uh, an uh, older gentleman uh, who sounds much more like a professor than he does a police chief. And I remember uh, when I was first thinking about what cities to include, I had a long phone conversation with him. I was standing in my backyard here in Maine. And he said, Neil, you know, one of my goals in Longmont has been to disassociate the police from the criminal justice system. And I said to myself, what is what? he talking about? I, I have yeah. to get out there to Longmont to, to figure that out. So it was a different process for uh, for every city. But it was important to me that I cover cities that were larger, like Stockton, about 320,000, smaller, like uh, LaGrange, mid-sized, like Longmont. Uh, that kind of covers the the spectrum of uh, police departments. There are certainly some that are much bigger. Um, and it was also important to me that the cities be different politically and that each of the chiefs have a different uh, model of policing that they pursued. Well, I mean, that, but that is the one constant, it seems, through these three very different localities was regardless of, of laws and how voters were acting and what politicians were doing, in all three cases, it was the police chiefs who led these departments who were singularly responsible for changing the cop culture in each one of them. I mean, and it seems like they didn't do it by having uh, a mandatory fixed set of reforms. It seems like it just kind of happened rather loosely. Yeah, you know, I think one of the challenges with police reform in this country is that uh, people who want change rightfully want to impose more uh, restrictions on police behavior, tighter use of force policies, more accountability. All those things are, uh, of course, uh, important uh, and useful in, in, in changing behavior, at least in the short term. 
I think the research suggests, however, that because so much of policing is done with officers privately on the street without supervisors there necessarily to enforce the rules, that what matters more is the culture of policing, that the, the, rule, the norms, the values, the sort of informal uh, rules of thumb that cops follow. And, uh, and changing that is key. And I think you're absolutely right. Leadership is, is, is essential. You can't mandate change from, uh, from you know, political figures. You can't tell cop culture to change. Uh, it has to be led slowly to change. And that really happens through, through a committed leadership. In all three of these agencies, uh, the the uh, leaders allowed a, a different model of policing to emerge. Some from their own uh, their own sense of right and wrong. Uh, some from uh, intensive conversations with folks in the community. Some from looking just uh, clear eyed at what the city needed in terms of public safety. Uh, and and then they led their officers slowly but surely toward change. Uh, and that's really essential. Uh, that that sort of change in cop culture to some extent has to be led from the inside and has to be led from from the executive from the police chief. I mean, this expression you use, they allowed it to emerge. You know, it, it, I think we're used to movies where you'd see the new precinct chief come in and tear down the whiteboard and just say, this is how we're doing things here now. But there was nothing like that in terms of a, a, a transformative ceremony. This was just gradual. These chiefs who listened gradually developed models after talking with a lot of different people in the community and their department. And it seems the the one unifying trait was all of these chiefs really wanted to change the culture. That was the goal, not to just say they were doing something and hit a snooze alarm, but to let change happen, even if it took years. That's right. And, you know, one example of this, I think, is is Stockton, California, where a chief named Eric Jones, uh, who'd grown up uh, near Stockton. Stockton's a city of about, uh, as I said, uh, about 300,000, uh, an hour east of the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, when Jones took over, he'd, he'd grown up uh, quite close to Stockton. Uh, and when he took over as, as chief, his goal initially wasn't really to make big reforms. I mean, initially his goal was to tamp down violence. Stockton has a, a long-standing history with uh, gang violence. It's a blue-collar community. Uh, uh, a relatively high degree of uh, concentrated poverty. And uh, when Jones took over in 2012, the city had just gone through bankruptcy and it suffered really badly during the financial crisis. Uh, the department was down 100 officers of its 400 officer force and uh, gun violence uh, had increased dramatically. The number of homicides had skyrocketed. So Jones's first order of business was trying to bring those shootings down, bring those numbers down. Interestingly, he found that he couldn't do it unless he won back trust with the community. And Stockton is a city that has a long history of fairly brutal policing. So for him, right. he, he had an interest in making the system better from the inside, but his first interest was in public safety. And and the reform piece, uh, as you said, emerged uh, you know, secondarily to the goal of uh, improving public safety in the community. But there was no major tipping point. It was just a process that continues to evolve. That's right. I, I will say that in all three cities, it took enormous energy on the part of the chiefs. Uh, you know, yeah. It's it's hard. <laughs> there there are lots of pressures against changing in, in law enforcement. It's a very, uh, in some ways, a very stubborn institution. Um, but all the chiefs uh, leaned into uh, the change process uh, quite significantly. Uh, whether this meant um, you know tr uh, mandatory trainings for officers, whether it meant constant meetings with community members, uh, whether it meant difficult conversations with the community where cops. And citizens would sit down at a table and citizens would tell their stories of, of, of you know, mistreatment or in some cases, you know, being treated well and cops would share their stories. Uh, constant efforts uh, on the part of all three officers. And, and really, that's what that's what made the difference. And also, John, if I can say trust um, in, in mm -hmm. all three of these agencies, you know, I think what ultimately allowed change to happen was that the chiefs had enough credibility 
with their officers, in some cases with the union, that they could make changes uh, that sometimes seemed uh, incremental, sometimes seemed a little bit more radical, as in Longmont. Um, and while not every officer was on board with it, enough trusted the chief that they that they went along with it. Stockman's a great example, pretty conservative police union. Uh, and over time, they came to trust uh, Jones's leadership so much that you know he invested in a philosophy of policing called procedural justice, which lots of mm-hmm. other departments have tried, but he really succeeded with it. Eventually, they they came around uh, and and became uh, important advocates for it. So uh, that trust is absolutely crucial. I find it interesting that you were talking about the issue of developing trust, but you say in relation to the other police. Normally, that's in relation to the community members, but it's true. Any police chief who comes in with the intent of reforming a system is going to have to really try to earn a lot of trust on both sides of their job. I'm wondering if you can unpack procedural justice for us a bit, because it is a concept that's just beginning to get some national play. Sure. It's been um, around in one form or another for for some time. Uh, And the idea is uh, pretty simple. Um, If citizens believe that the justice system is treating them fairly, and they see evidence of that, uh, then the notion is that they see, in other words, that the procedures that the agents of the justice system are following are fair, then they're more likely to follow the law. Uh, They're more likely to turn to the law to resolve disputes instead of, for example, resolving disputes themselves by by using violence. So the notion is that if you can make the justice system more fair, you can increase uh, levels of obedience to the law, levels of lawfulness in the community. So procedural justice just emphasizes that, you know, whether it's cops or or judges or anyone else in the justice system, that they have to be uh, acting in a demonstrably fair and equitable fashion. So other departments had, had tried to get into this, uh, Chicago, Minneapolis. Um, but in Stockton, uh, Jones, as I said, really uh, put a strong emphasis on it. He ran mandatory trainings for all his officers. Many weren't interested at first. Uh, he brought in a prominent historian uh, to do research on the history of injustices by the police in Stockton, which were then taught to new recruits. He did right these intensive wow. conversations in the community, again, about um, you know, all the history of police mistrust, about uh, shootings and so on. Uh, it was a long process of trying to build that trust up, and uh, and it had a demonstrable effect. There was some really great uh, survey research done by the Urban Institute that showed that over the course of just a very short period of time, uh, trust among the most disadvantaged Stockton residents, trust in the police, uh, went up uh, quite considerably. And there were other uh, signs as well of uh, violent crime. Uh, went down. The solve rate for homicides went up, which is largely a function of the community trusting the police more and sharing more information with them. Uh, so good things happened in Stockton. It wasn't a complete turnaround. Stockton's still a very hard charging department, um, yeah. but uh, but it was a, a, a meaningful and a noticeable change. Stockton is the largest city you studied for the book. Can I ask you about LaGrange? Because that is the the smallest uh, town that you covered. And I, I learned from you that 90% of the 15,000 or so local police departments in the U.S. have 50 officers or fewer. How small was LaGrange? Yeah. So LaGrange is a city of about 30,000 um, and so fewer than 100 officers. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's not you know, the smallest of all police forces, but it's it's certainly on the smaller end of things. Um fascinating community. Uh, it's, the city is uh, half, roughly half white, half black. Uh, long history uh, in in the community of uh, racial inequality, uh, certainly a long uh, history uh, going uh, dating back uh, of slavery. Troop County, where LaGrange is located, was the was the fifth largest um, uh, slaveholding county in, in the state of Georgia. Uh, and, and the legacies of that kind of remain in the community. So lots of tensions uh, between 
uh, black and white residents and, and between um, uh, the police and uh, and the black community in particular. And just two things to speak to this. Uh, one, uh, I interviewed a, a now retired uh, black officer who told me that in the 1970s, um, he was you know, one of the uh, few black officers and he wasn't allowed to stop white people for traffic stops. Uh, really? His superiors told him that was that, the, the, you know, his sergeants and so on said that was not OK. And this was also a community that until the early 90s had uh, two swimming pools in town that were uh, de facto segregated. So uh, a really intense history of uh, of uh, of racial inequality and racism in the community. Uh, and into this community steps a chief named Lou Dekmar, uh, who's a conservative, not from the South, um, comes in after a fairly long uh, experience with law enforcement in, in Wyoming and in the military and decides that he wants to bring policing in LaGrange up to national and international specifications. And so he uh, begins to implement a whole range of policy changes. Um, he you know, tries to root out officers who um, you know, won't comply with mandates. Uh, there's no union, union in, in LaGrange, so it was easier for him to let officers go. Um, he finds uh, many more complaints to be justified than, uh, than his peers do in other places. Yeah. And at the same time that he's working uh, he's also trying to instill a sort of rule-bound culture uh, in LaGrange uh, and also a culture emphasizing uh, emphasizing um, the preservation of life. Um, there's there's yes. lots to this story. One of the pieces of it is that he ends up uh, becoming the first police chief in the South to apologize for his department's role in a lynching that took place back in 1940. And this was a pretty important and transformative moment uh, for the community. And it helped to cement the, the sort of respectful policing culture that, that he put in place there. There's two little, little anecdotes that speak to it. You know, I knew I was in a different place, uh, a different kind of department when um, early on in one of my visits, it was a really sunny day. Uh, and I was noticing that the officers, they were out in the street uh, talking to people and um, none of them were wearing sunglasses, which was totally new to me. I couldn't understand why weren't they wearing sunglasses. And they said, oh, chief doesn't allow us to because it uh, it, 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 it's seen as a sign of disrespect by citizens. Uh, and that's that's kind wow. of the culture. Of totally the fascinating. Totally fascinating. That's, yeah. So it was uh, certainly an intriguing uh, kind of community to to spend time in and, and to get to know the officers there. You know, I mean, you probably have heard this. So many people, well-intentioned from all sides of the political aisle, thought body cams on cops would stop police misconduct. A lot of us thought, get the body cams out there, and that's just going to be the step. It'll be a domino effect, and it'll be so inconvenient and so impossible to interfere with citizens. But um, as you point out time and time again in the book, you really can't improve policing just by having new rules or new technology. I mean, we have to have these advances, and you have to have new regulations and keep evolving. But it seems like nothing will change until there's a shift in the mindset of the police in a given precinct. Yeah, that certainly uh, was my experience um, looking back on my time in, in Berkeley. And, and you know, it resonates with what I found in these three communities. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about Stockton and, and LaGrange. Longmont's uh, a good example of exactly that there. Uh, this chief, Mike Butler, uh worked to implement a, a really progressive model of policing. And one of the things he did, there are lots of policy pieces to it, but one of the main things he did was try to implement an ethos of, uh, of respect for human life and, and also an ethos of, uh, of care. 
uh, and social responsibility. And that sounds like, okay, what does this actually look like on the ground? Is this just a lot of, a lot of words? It really wasn't a lot of words. Um, spent you know, time with officers there um, and witnessed uh, some really extreme um, instances of, uh, of de-escalation where officers took tremendous care to try to calm situations down. Uh, in some cases, um, you know, an hour trying to calm down. There's a story I tell in the book of, uh, of a, a, a really difficult case involving um, a, young, a, young, a young boy, he's 14, um, experiencing a, a mental health crisis. Uh, <laughs> and the police are trying to calm him down and keep him from, um, from attacking some social workers who are there uh, trying to deal with him and his family. Uh, and the cops just showed a tremendous uh, patience and care with this young man. It wasn't ultimately a successful de-escalation. But uh, I think in a department that didn't have that kind of ethos, I don't think you would have seen the officers necessarily uh, offer that, like, that level of care. Totally fascinating. I could talk with you about this excellent book all night. Please come back if you're ever up for it. I'd love to go even deeper. Neil Gross is the author. The book is Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. Professor Gross, you 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 made my day and my cynical heart is a lot more hopeful after going through your book and speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We will be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is SiriusXM Progress. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm John saying This is Sirius XM Progress. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. I'm so excited to welcome John Russell back to the show. You have no idea. Uh, Mr. Russell was born and raised in Wellsville, Ohio, but today he publishes a substack that I subscribe to, and you should too. It's focused totally on Appalachia. And it is called The Holler, and it serves politics to voters in the uh, upper Ohio Valley. Now, John has run for office in the past. He's worked for a major presidential campaign, and he writes about what caused his region to switch from a progressive union-rich stronghold, and by his region, I guess he means America, to uh, the kind of red state blight that we have seen. The Holler, as he says, is Appalachian-based independent media for the fed-up working class. We are so happy to welcome back to the show John Russell. Hello, sir. Hey, John, thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. And I appreciate that uh, Willie and Towns Van Zandt reference. The tagline for the hollers, class politics for rednecks and hippies. And that comes directly from uh, Willie's autobiography. Big fan. 
Absolutely. Willie's done our show a bunch of times, and I'm thrilled to have you back on our show as well. So thank you. You had great taste in politics and music. Um, and I, 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 I love your Substack. Now, now for those who, who, for those who don't know, let's get the basics out of the way. Um, how do you define the Appalachian Range? How do you define the region itself, where you live, where you work, and where you interact with hardworking Americans? There's a lot of different, uh, you know, you can look at the map of Appalachia. There's a lot of different, you know, distinct regions. Uh, even in West Virginia, I live a minute away from Wheeling, West Virginia. Upper West Virginia is a little bit low, uh, different than coal mining country. But where I am is really uh, Rust Belt Industrial Appalachia. We uh, dug up all the coal, made all the steel. Uh, we produce all the natural gas. This area of the country um, that is, you know, eastern Ohio, northern West Virginia, western Pennsylvania, um, it gets all of the industries that uh, richer communities kick out of their backyards because they're dirty, dirty and polluting. And, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, power uh, to really regulate them here. But a lot of the people here work in those industries and, and, and make the make the world go around. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to quote you from your Substack, um, which I love and I, I do subscribe to. You wrote one of the most satisfying things about being a leftist dive bartender in Appalachia is you get a perspective on politics from working here that you might not have because you can look at the national news and pretty easily conclude that 80 million plus or minus a few people are in their house plotting to end people who don't look like them. Then you work in here and interact with members of those 80 million and realize that they're just people who are very quick to fight over small, stupid things and have really bad information about politics. You know, you can be smart and have bad information that hit close to me as someone with a big Southern family and a big Brooklyn family as well. And what I always love is that despite uh, where you disagree in politics, the love you have for the people you serve always comes through and the respect for them as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, you know, I, I bartended here while I was getting the Substack running. And, you know, I, my my bar is very rowdy. My last shift was on Saturday. I, I'm uh, going to go part time at another bar. But, uh, you know, it, it is uh, a, a place where, you know, fights happen and all of this. But at the end of the day, you know, people are working really hard jobs here. They don't have a lot of time uh, to think deeply about politics. They're absolutely capable of that, as you know, we'll talk about in our conversations that I've had with people in East Palestine. They're absolutely capable of that. But they're also preyed upon by right wing media. I mean, yeah. you know, right, right wing media knows uh, they're defending a small group of super wealthy people. There's a lot of people out there that uh, could unite and, and, and kind of change the situation. They know that. So they need to create me media networks and actively prey on the kind of people who drink in my That's bar to, to muddy the water. That's it. I mean, rich people pay Fox people to make working people blame poor people. And it's a system that works. But, you know, when we began hearing about the tragedy in East Palestine, we saw a lot of media heading out there. And we saw some politicians heading out there and maybe a couple of Norfolk Southern's executives heading out there. I was really interested to see what you got from your visits to East Palestine. Now, you've been there quite a bit. You've been on the ground. You've talked with many, many different people at every leg of this. Let me just ask about the first time, you know, when when the derailment first began and mainstream media didn't even cover it for a couple of days. 
What was your experience there, John? And and um, walk our listeners through what you saw when you drove down. I'm actually going to start seven weeks before this derailment happened because that was the important conversation. Uh, seven weeks before it happened, I I was going to cover the rail strike that never was. That's right. And I went down to a rally to talk to rail workers that was being held in Columbus, Ohio. And I met Clyde Whitaker, who uh, is a, a union guy that covers some territory, including East Palestine. And we had this conversation where he taught me about precision scheduled railroad. It's this practice that cuts everything important, safety, training, staff, maintenance, uh, increase of the length of, length of trains. It's adopted by all the railroads and it's what's responsible for the uh, insane profits that's happening. Seven weeks before this derailment happened, he told me because of the short-term profit seeking, the public is in danger. We are having derailments that don't make the news every three days. Mm-hmm. We just had one in Northeast Ohio that uh, it was a train carrying candle wax, right? And he said, it's not much time before something catastrophic happens. That was seven weeks before this derailment. When the derailment happened, I went back to the tape with, with Clyde because I thought he said something like that. And it turns out he had. But, of course, rail workers have been warning about uh, dangers for months. Yeah. Um, so when I got up there, um, you know, the, the, the media response uh, immediately was kind of typical. It was, you know, asking how much cancer are we going to get from this tragedy and when? But usually, you know, there's never the question asked about, what did this have to do with short-term profit seeking and why are boom. we being subjected? Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those questions aren't going to be asked. They're not going to be asked by mainstream media either. Right. And, you know, it, it, it was an interesting fact up there. You know, the first press conference I went to, you can see all the station letters on the, on the microphones arranged around the podium where, uh, North, by the way, at this first press conference, Norfolk Southern executives did not show up. They sent out, uh, you know, a middle manager fall guy to be the representative uh for a mushroom cloud you know their train was detonated and sent toxic chemicals everywhere the representative they send was wearing work boots and a high-vis vest they sent a guy out to take the fall there but Mm. what i want to say about this first press conference was uh most of those stations you run right down the list and the first the very first news landing on public ears is coming from stations that are owned by sinclair or Boom. by Cox Media, right? And who owns those places? It's a, a who's who of private equity firms on Wall Street. And the really interesting thing is that those same private equity firms that own the media covering the disaster also own significant stakes in normal. There you Southern. go. There you go. And so this is why, with respect to politics and bashing fascists, all we need. But what I've seen for a month straight now is people on the right saying this is because of Trump and what Trump did in 2017. Or I'll see media saying, no, no, let's blame Pete Buttigieg for this or let's blame Joe Biden for this. I don't see a lot of corporate media, John, anywhere talking about the railroad's decision to save a buck and endanger American lives. The media is just feeding the political finger-pointing horse race seemingly as cover for the real dastardly perpetrators of all of this. I really want to underscore that. You you said it perfectly because uh, a, a lot of the, you know, 
whatever you want to define as the quote-unquote left media, the, the, the tip of the spear of their argument was, was something that was true. It was these regulations that were proposed by Obama, that were rolled back by Trump, that were uh, not picked up by the Biden administration. All of those regulations should have been in effect. They would have lessened the impact of this derailment, but they were secondary to the cause of this. This derailment was the direct result of short-term profit-seeking and a complete lack of regulations on on much more basic things uh, than those, you know, Obama, Trump, Biden regulations that were that were yeah. being talked about. Really, this this industry owned by Wall Street, uh, you know, constantly consolidating on these are trains, right? They're big. They're carrying lots of, you know, dangerous things. They're getting longer. They're going faster. And there is shockingly little regulation on things as simple as a wheel bearing. That's it. And, you know, the profit seeking needs to be addressed because there's just not enough time to safely inspect them and get them down the tracks. You talk about going to East Palestine, where it was is 60 miles from where you live, 20 miles from where you grow up, and how the Norfolk Southern executives didn't show up for the event they helped plan. They said they weren't feeling safe as the reason for their absence. You talk about... The bright red padlocked plastic cages blocking the water fountains with danger written on them in seven different languages. <clears throat> John, after your visits to the area, how, how scared are you about the long-term health of the folks who live there? Oh, you know, I, I don't know if scared is the right way to put it. Uh, it's just, just angry. You know, this area is no stranger to heavy polluting industries. You know, my, there's there's a picture from 1981 um, in East Liverpool, Ohio. That's close to where I grew up. Same county as East Palestine. And there's a woman in a uh, hazmat costume protesting the construction back then of the nation's largest hazardous waste incinerator. That ultimately went through, and the person in that costume was my mom. Uh. Right. So this area has been dealing with heavy polluters for a long time. We're we're kind of used to that, unfortunately. I'm just angry that this company, the overarching thing that comes through from coverage on the ground is just a dare by this company to do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, residents would tell me that, they, we talked to people living right by the tracks. They said this train derailed a day later, there were tracks sitting there to pave right over the spill site, which is exactly what they did. There were chemicals spilled there. It wasn't even clear. You know, the, the first press conference, the governor didn't even know what was on the train. That's right. The, the train company knew this and they laid tracks right over chemicals that came out later to be even more of a concern than the vinyl right. chloride that happened. Right. So this company, they caused this spectacular disaster, paved right over it. Uh, three minutes after the evacuation order was lifted, trains are rolling right through there. It's all just a dare uh, in, in a show of force by how unaccountable the largest American companies are. And this isn't only railroads. This echoes back to the opioid crisis here. Of course. Of course. It sounds like the Sacklers. I mean, they can operate this way because they have the ironclad confidence that they will not be held accountable. They have enough media and they have enough politicians 
doing their bidding. You tell a great anecdote I read in your Substack about uh, Congressman Bill Johnson, who's one of those guys who's been in Congress for years and no one's ever heard of him. He's just there all the time. Came with the Tea Party, I think, in 2010. But at this event, this this town hall that the Norfolk Southern executives chose to not even show up at. You tell the story about this kid who asks a question, um, how are us kids supposed to feel safe when it smells bad outside? And uh, I'd like you to just tell our listeners a bit about how Congressman Bill Johnson responded to this. Oh, yeah. I mean, here you have a child uh, standing in front of, you know, the whole town. This this is a town of 5,000 people, and they're all crammed into this high school gym expecting answers. And this kid has the courage to stand up and ask probably the best question of the night. How are we supposed to feel safe when it smells bad? And, and you know, Bill Johnson uh, musters his best earnest politician voice and explains to this child uh, that the the volatile organic compounds that he's smelling are a bit like peeling an orange over the sink. It might smell a little bit, but it's not going to kill you. You know, this is the kind of response that's coming from uh, the person more than anybody else that we're expecting to go toe to toe with this company and actually, you know, represent the people. He's a representative uh, yeah. to Congress, but I think that answers all you need to know about his capacity to do that. I know your uh, your girlfriend passes you a, a, a note in the story that tells you that Bill Johnson's accepted at least $18,000 as a congressman from Norfolk Southern PAC. It's just, it's just right there. Yeah, it's right there. And uh, that's right. My girlfriend Jessica and I were driving up to East Palestine expecting to maybe see Congressman Johnson. And she tallied up on a, you know, on a piece of paper flowing around the truck was $18,000. So we asked him about that. And um, he of course, didn't have an answer. I, I am proud that a day later he, he ended up giving that back. Uh, that's the very least he could do. But here's a point I want to make about that. Why does Bill Johnson need to take so much money from corporate PACs? Bill Boom. Johnson, Bill Johnson is in a district that is impossible for him to lose. It was designed that way. Uh, there are many more of his voters because of partisan gerrymandering in this district than he could ever lose with, right? So this money isn't needed to compete for votes. The votes are already gerrymandered into his corner. What <sighs> donations like that to congressmen and safe seats are really buying is influence. I think that's what made him the most uncomfortable. And that's not only in this district. That's how it is everywhere, what partisan gerrymandering so I mean, tell me a bit about your conversations with the folks in East Palestine. What has surprised you? What's inspired you? And, and, and what's been depressing? Yeah, you know, um, I want to maybe let's start with a, a little serving of depression here because Please, it is yes. pretty abundant. But, uh, you know, that's important here. I, mean, I, look, was, I, don't, uh, I don't mean to be morbid. I just feel like the media has moved on from this already. You know, we saw the pictures of the cloud and they figure, OK, the clouds dissipated. They burned it all up. So uh, let's let's move on and just keep up with the political finger pointing. You've actually been there, still there talking to people because that's what a real journalist does. I'll give you a little story. Um, you know, in small towns like this, if you're doing journalism, you're usually at the McDonald's because that's what has free Wi-Fi now. And that's, a, right. you know, says something in itself about our economy. But I was uh, interviewing a source at a McDonald's and uh, a woman who turned out to be in her 80s was sitting across from me in the booth. Uh, she heard me talking and introduced herself. 
after that. And she said, um, I've been living here for a while. I'm not originally from here. She had lost her husband um, and her house and did a new start for herself in East Palestine. And she was at McDonald's uh, because her house, she, she tried to sleep in her house and it, she woke up in the middle of the night and it smelled like an electrical fire. She was covered in hives. And she had gone Jesus. back to sleep in her house after uh, she really didn't have any choice. She's on a fixed income, near 80. Uh, she can't pay for a hotel. She was pretty cautious. Uh, she said, you know, I guess the government and the agencies are saying the water's safe and the air is safe, so we'll give it a shot. And she found out that uh, it was anything but safe. So where else is she going to go? She goes to the McDonald's and, and talks to me about it. But the sad thing about this was um, she said, there's nothing else I can do. My home value is cratered. I don't have enough money to front for a hotel. And by the time any payment from this class action comes out, I'll be long gone. That's it. So she is she is stuck in this house. And uh, the really important thing here is her story was so common that we couldn't even fit it into a cut uh, for a news segment of this. There are so many people that are just stuck they have to go to work to survive. They can't sell their house and they're going to be dealing with whatever comes down the line 15 or 20 years from now that we don't even That's know. It. Right. That's it. And that, that we'll never hear about either. It'll never be reported. You, you retweeted uh, on your Twitter account from the uh, River Valley Organizing. And they said, folks from the East Palestine community are clear in what they need. One, relocation for anyone who wants it. Two, independent environmental testing. Three, ongoing medical monitoring. Four, Dispose of toxic waste safely. And five, Norfolk Southern pays 100%. John, are we close to any of those five things actually happening? Is independent environmental testing even going to be allowed here? You know, with response, with the typical response when disasters like this happen are no, none of those things happen. But I will say, here's, here's a little hope. I mean, River Valley Organizing put out those demands that it came from uh, people who, you know, turned out a meeting of 200 some folks in the town, maybe more than that, you know, hundreds of people came out, they organized, they put out these demands. And this company, you know, there's a reason why it's a cliche, power concedes nothing without a demand. This mm -hmm. company, when, the, when it went down, their first offer was $25,000 yeah. to the town. For everybody. For everybody. For right? everybody. Yeah, for not everybody. just per person, for the whole town. For the whole accident. We we detonated a toxic train. Here's $25,000. Sorry, not sorry. They upped it uh, to a, you know $1,000 to anybody in the, in the blast zone. Um, organizations like River Valley Organizing are extracting more from this company. They're keeping the ball in the air, keeping the pressure on. And that's the only way that you really do exercise power against these companies. So what I will say about them and what's so clear, you know, I've, I've spent time in politics and typically um, progressive organizations with organizing in the name, they have a lot of people that are, you know, professional uh, political staffers, <laughs> like, right. like, like the track that I was once on, right? right? River Valley organizing is not that. River Valley organizing is made of people that I would not want to tangle with in a bar fight. <laughs> one of them said to me, one of them said to me, they're tatted up and they're mad. 
they said, I used to fight with my hands and now I'm fighting with my words for what this company did in my town. And I could not be more proud of, of, of people doing that. And I wish them all the luck. You know, the, the, we're waiting to find out what the official reason was for this derailment. I mean, the NTSB still hasn't released their final report, have they? They keep saying it's coming. Um, but they, 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 they've hinted that it was the, the wheel bearing on the train car that people saw on their ring doorbells sparking for 20 miles before the train derailed in East Palestine. But I got to tell you, I, I feel like Ian Holm in the suite hereafter investigating the school bus crash. I just feel like there was no accident. This was not an accident. Someone did not do their job, and that is why this happened. It seems more and more like this was 100% preventable. Is, is that the feeling of the folks of East Palestine? Absolutely. And, um, you know, a lot can be gained from listening to rail workers. They were, you know, telling us uh, the Guardian broke a story. We're reporting on it as well. Uh, There are 200 points to inspect on every single train car. And uh, you have two miles worth of them to inspect on every single train. Mm. And so the the Carmen's Union, the workers there are tasked with doing that. And they said, you know, back in the day, it was three minutes to inspect all those points. Now with this short-term profit pressure, it's down to under a minute. So it's mostly visual inspections. And there is a confirmed reported pressure of managers saying to the people inspecting these cars, stop finding so many bad orders on these outbound trains, or that might come back to hurt you at work because these things have got to move down the tracks at any cost. These are the kind of things that's, that have been endangering the public that workers have been warning us about for, you know, months now. Yeah. You know, can you explain Mike DeWine's role in all of this? A lot of us got some good vibes for your governor during COVID, because at least he came out and didn't lie about basic science. But mm-hmm. it, it seems like he has been disingenuous at best. I mean, when, when he began the entire ordeal by saying Joe Biden offered me whatever I needed, and I haven't taken him up on it yet. I'm kind of like, well, okay, who's who's running this state, actually? And I've not gotten any more confidence in Governor DeWine's leadership over the past couple of weeks. Uh, well, I think you're picking up on something that is, uh, you know, true. Uh, Bill Johnson took 18000 from the railroads. Uh, this is just the money that we see, by the way. And, and yeah. Mike DeWine took nearly 30000 from the railroads. Really, you know, DeWine is at the head of the agencies that uh, we expect to hold these railroads accountable. They, he heads up the agencies and hires the people that are that should be out there testing and letting us know the truth. Uh, but it has been, you know, a failure, in, in my opinion, from reporting on the ground, uh, of course, of the company, but also of the state agencies. I mean, um, the EPA has a, a, a spotty track record with things like Flint and hiring subcontractors that are, uh, you know, pretty cozy with the company. Uh, there is a subcontractor for testing that was hired that that is usually trotted out whenever Norfolk Southern uh, messes up. Uh, they're working with the EPA, too. All of these, you know, officials headed up by Mike DeWine uh, we're, we're saying something that just didn't pass the smell test. Uh, you know, days after this thing, they were saying the air and water are no different today than before this derailment. And, and it just doesn't add up with residents across the board, you know, returning home and uh, coming out with burning eyes and headaches mm. and rashes on their body. Uh, 
it's been a failure of accountability on the agency's part and, and transparency, transparency as well. Just emergency management. I mean, uh, really the overarching thing, and people will tell you this, is that it feels like you're on your own. It, it certainly feels that way. Uh, John, before I let you go, you had a great takedown on your Twitter against Josh Hawley, who was talking about how we're the Republicans, we're the party of working folks. And you were like, all right, prove it. Pass the PRO Act. Show up on picket lines. Break up the railroads and the banks. I mean, you of all people have have so eloquently over the years excoriated these oligarchs for pretending to care about the working man while legislating against working people every step of the way. How does it make you feel to hear these guys trying to glad hand this and try to build up their hardworking men to the people bona fides while never doing anything to hold the perpetrators accountable? You of all people must be enraged by it. How does it make me feel? Well, if I if I told you your your show would be canceled by the FCC, I just you know. He's from Missouri. It's the show me state. And I have the same answer to anybody saying that. And for that matter, matter from any party, show me if we need a party of the working class out here anymore. It's if you have to work to survive, you are on one side. If you have enough money that it multiplies itself, you're on the other side. If you want to be the party of the working class, Democrat, Republican, whatever, show us. Boom. John Russell is the man behind The Holler, the Appalachian-based independent media for the fed-up working class. John, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Uh, You can follow the social accounts at HeyJohnRussell. We'll be working with More Perfect Union. Check them. And the newsletter, always free, always for rednecks and hippies, always (laughs) class-based. That is The Holler, holler theholler.co. Always an honor, sir. Please come back anytime. Our platform is always open to you. God bless you for all the work you're doing for those folks there and getting these stories out. Thank you again, John Russell. Thanks so much, John. Peace. We'll be right back with your calls. We're at 866-997-4748. This is Sirius XM. Don't go away. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelstein. We're at 866-997-4748. Hey, you guys have been so patient on hold. Let's get to some of your calls. Tyler in Arkansas, thank you so much and welcome. Yes. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. We're thank talking you. about the abortions on uh, prosecution of abortions. Mm-hmm. 
I have seven kids, and six of them are girls. You know, okay. I know that I'm probably going to come to the fact of one of them might get to that situation. I'm strongly against abortion, but I don't think that they should be prosecuted for their own body choices. I understand that feeling. I mean, you know, so, so I mean, you sound like my mom and dad, who would never call themselves pro-choice, and they felt that abortion was way too common, but my mom and dad also oh. never wanted to see it criminalized and never wanted to see women go to jail for it. Well, my whole thing is, if they make it illegal, all they're going to do is find some back alley doctor to do it That's anyway. That's it. That's it. If they make it illegal, then all they're going to do is end the safe, legal, regulated kinds. And you're right. Guys who are auto mechanics who do a thing on the side for a girl will, you know, see people in their garage. I mean, however people get it done, it's going to create thousands of new Dr. Kermit Gosnell butcher clinics. It's also going to punish poor women with even more poverty. You know, no one says you have to like abortion rights, but it's like, I, I think you have the right attitude, sir. Men get out of the way. It's none of our business. Well, I also agree that if she's going to be prosecuted, so should he. Oh, I agree as well, but she should not be prosecuted and neither should he either. I think I think we can Correct. agree on that. Yes, sir. Well, I got to say, your daughters are very lucky to have a dad like you in Arkansas. Well, I hope so. Well, they're not lucky to have the governor they have. They're lucky to have you. I thank you so much for the call, Tyler. Really appreciate it. Have a great evening. 866-997-4748. Rob is calling from West Virginia. Hello, Rob. Welcome. Rob, are you there? Bob. Bob, are you there, Bob? Yeah, um, this Mayor Pete, he's got to go. You know, I don't dislike the man, but his response to what happened in Ohio, in Palestine, was like a day late and a dollar short. And timing is everything. And, you know, Trump used that as a photo op to go out there. And FEMA originally said, well, no, we deal with natural disasters, which I I guess that's true. Right. Um, But then... Trump put his nose into it. So all of a sudden, FEMA changed the tune. And these people, and, and, and what really bothers me, and, and I have to give Joe Madison props, because Please. when this first came out, Joe Madison on Urban View said, these are working people, and this should not be about partisanship. It should be yeah. about the government helping out people who need help and, and about and about just, the and about the people who are responsible being held accountable right because my whole point is of, of we're course. not no one's talking people are of, saying oh left right trump Buttigieg, judge no. i want to focus on the rail company well I, I i agree and and it looks like it was a bearing that came off and what did mayor pete say he said oh this is because of the trump administration wouldn't pass some law about breaking it had nothing to do with breaking. And, you know, I'm sorry. Am, am I asking too much to know what the facts are in an act? No. Am I no, being unreasonable? We, we haven't. We have not actually been told by the NTSB what the official cause is yet. Whoa, um, whoa, hold on. Hold on. The woman who runs the S, uh, whatever the acronym is for that. National, National Transportation, Transportation Safety, Safety Board. Board. Yeah. Okay, she came out immediately and said it had nothing to do with breaking. So I, I'm, you know, 
And, and it was nice to see, hey, a federal official finally standing up and saying, no, you're wrong. Okay, and, but so um, until we know what the official reason is, I, I don't know how we can go calling for anyone to resign. Or I don't know how we can fairly blame it on Donald Trump well, or Pete we, Buttigieg we keep, or Mike we DeWine. Keep, we just had another derailment in Ohio with the same railroad. Exactly. All right. And Mayor Pete, you know. Secretary Pete, he's he got a new got, job now. Secretary, he, Secretary Pete. Okay, Secretary Pete. He got that job because he endorsed Joe Biden instead of endorsing Bernie Sanders. All right, and, and Trump gave, uh, what's his name, uh, the black guy, the, the surgeon, uh, head of... Uh, uh, Dr. Carson, that, yes. Right, Dr. Carson. I mean, it was a political favor, let's be honest here. Yeah, that's but usually I'm how sorry, cabinets are often Mayor put together. Pete. Yes, and this guy, and, and I would love to see a man who's homosexual run the National Transportation Board who knows what he's doing. This man okay. does not know what he's doing. Well, why do you say that when we don't know actually what has happened and when historically transportation secretaries don't usually show up for train derailments? Why, why, why are you wanting to point the finger at Buttigieg before a report has come in? Airlines have been jam-packed of, of right. people missing flight. Planes right. are coming close to hitting one another up in Logan Airport. But what does yesterday. that have to do with Palestine? But you called about Palestine. Well, no, it, it's the whole it's the whole picture with this guy. All right. In the past, if this had been Bill Clinton, he would have fired him. All right. For what? For what? Reagan, for what? Him. For what? What? Fire him for what? An, an, an appearance of ineptness. Okay. What? What is? What are his qualifications to run? No. What are his qualifications to run shipping, inter, interstate transportation? railways and all the stuff that go involved with that. What, what are his qualifications? Do you know that transportation is usually the job where a president offers it to a member of the opposite party? It's usually just this olive branch gig where a Democrat will always offer to give a Republican the job of transportation secretary. And historically, it's gone back and forth like that from both. It's normally well, just this little gift they it, give to the opposing it, it party is, to make nice. Well, it, it, whatever whatever is going on, it's not working because we have major supply chain issues. And right, I'm but that's sorry. not because I that's just, but supply chain. Su but listen, I, I I think we all have to take a step back and let's remember, let's not necessarily blame corporate greed on politicians, whether they're effective or not, and let's separate those two things. And in this case, I think we're looking at a lot of corporate greed. And I think at a lot of the airline issues, we're looking at a lot of corporate greed as well. You want to tell me the specific thing that Mayor Pete did that caused this or that was against the law? Great. But to me, it's just that's a distraction. And by the way, until it's proven that a Trump policy led to this, blaming Trump for it is a distraction as well. well thank you Call for me saying that. Absolutely. Call me back when you have something granite, something hardcore you can use other than you don't like Pete Buttigieg. I get it, but I don't think it's going to be enough to get rid of the guy. We'll see what happens. I, I thank you for the call, Bob. I really appreciate it.